Hello, welcome to JobsCast. This is your host, Pat Bubble. In today's episode, I speak with Thomas M. Countryman. Tom served the United States of America as a diplomat for 35 years. In the span of that career, he worked with Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton, to drop a few of the big names. I met Tom last fall while volunteering for the Biden campaign in northeastern Pennsylvania, although met might not be the right word for one-way contact. There were a lot of people on the Zoom call, and we couldn't talk to each other directly. But anyway, Tom was the leader of this Zoom prep session for canvassing, and I found the meeting efficient and useful, and I loved Tom's vibe, so I made a note to reach out to him after the election, and thankfully he was willing to come on the pod. Our conversation is something of a historical artifact at this point, as it was recorded all the way back in January, shortly after the storming of the Capitol. And though the topical content we discuss might not be as immediately relevant, I think Tom's reflection on his career is replete with timeless insights. I don't know if I've said this before, but it's really worth underscoring that the JobsCast podcast relies significantly on the willingness of individuals to respond to out-of-the-blue emails from me. And similar to a project I did in my 20s called 1000 Till 30, where for a thousand days in a row, I'd ask a stranger on the street if they'd like to take a moment to chat with me, a fellow human, the positive response rate has been surprisingly high. Now, of course, with both projects, I really worked on my language and delivery to make a favorable impression. But the point here is if you're at all like me and have a hunger for getting to know the world better and building more community by speaking to people outside of your network, Don't be afraid to come up with some kind of creative endeavor that gives you a reason to reach out to people. You have to be willing to deal with getting rejected or ignored, which does sting, but ultimately I find this kind of outward-facing activity to be highly gratifying. On a similar note, it's well documented that doing something for others is a great way to lift the spirits. One good way to do that is to simply share your appreciation for someone else's creative work. I reached out to thank a writer earlier in the pandemic for her amazing piece about her relationship to the music of The Strokes, and she wrote back, Pat, thanks so much for the very kind words. I really appreciate it. Writing definitely feels like hollering into a void sometimes, especially now, so it's always lovely to hear from readers. Thank you again. As Dave Chappelle has pointed out, it seems like there's a conspiracy against kindness. Don't let it infect your brain. Be good to yourself and others. Resist what Cynthia Ozick describes as succumbing to the hollow of the quotidian. Get out of your comfort zone. Get in the world. Talk to people. Do a thing. Life is short. All right, that's it for the pep talk. I hope you enjoy today's convo. Please follow Tom on Twitter. He's TM Countryman on there. TM, and the countryman is spelled like countryman. And I'd really appreciate it if you followed me on Twitter as well at JobsCastPodcast. I now present to you my conversation with Tom Countryman. Tom, welcome to JobsCast. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for inviting me. Tom, you're a good person, I think, to help listeners begin to make sense of some of the events of the past 24 hours. How are you thinking about the storming of the Capitol? How are you processing these events? Well, we're recording this on January 7th, less than 24 hours after these uh, occurrences at the Capitol. And of course, like most Americans, I have many thoughts about it. First, it could have been worse. 
I think there's a lot to criticize about the police performance, but they did not create any martyrs for the lost cause theory that is going to spring up among Trump supporters. I think it had some salutary effect upon some Republicans in Congress who until now had seen it in their political self-interest to embrace every falsehood propounded by the president. And some of them may finally, past the 11th hour, begin to draw back (laughs) from that. What is terrible, of course, is the absolutely unprecedented case of a sitting U.S. president encouraging violence and insurrection and of not drawing back from it as soon as the violence started. You don't have to be a student of history to read at least superficially how Mussolini came to power in Italy in 1922. This is extremely similar to Mussolini's playbook. It's scary. It is a dark day. I'm in a way glad I am not representing the United States overseas today because I would have to explain to foreign audiences why there occurred in Washington something which the U.S. government has always condemned forcefully when it occurred in other countries. Mm. And just one more thought that it's, I don't think there was anything surprising about yesterday. As the saying goes, when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. And this is Donald Trump, who has made clear he is willing to use force whether it's the U.S. military or police or civilians, to enforce his rule. Uh, In June of last year, after Mr. Trump used the National Guard and tear gas to dispel protesters so he could walk across the street to hold up a book he had never read in his life, I led a couple of colleagues in drafting a letter that said, this is extraordinarily dangerous for the president to use the power of his office against peaceful protesters. And uh, we had that letter signed by, I can't remember if it was six or 800 former senior officials of both the military and diplomatic and other government services. So we could see what was coming. And considering that we knew what was coming, The police should have been better prepared, but as I said, it could have been far worse than it was. Thank you so much for that rich set of comments. One follow-up question on this, Tom, is that I've seen some pundits and journalists engage in this question of whether Trump supporters take him seriously or literally both or neither. I think about yesterday and watching President-elect Biden call for Trump to come on air and condemn the violence. And it's remarkable that he didn't until president until the president-elect gave a speech. So I wanted to make that point. But Trump said, he began by saying, we won this election by a landslide. And then he went on to say, there shouldn't be violence. People should go home. I love you, he, he even said. And I think some commentators look at that and they engage in this sort of psychological diagnosis of Trump. And they say, well, he believes that both things are somehow compatible, that he can tell people that he he believes that uh, he won by a landslide 
and also condemn violence. But to me, it's sort of moot because what matters is that enough people have taken him literally for long enough that it resulted in incitement and and a mob. I think everything you say is correct. It is not the first time he has incited people to violence. And it is not the first time that he has justified pro-Trump violence, even as he condemns anti-Trump violence. He has always been a deeply psychologically flawed human being with narcissism as his central trait, with no capability to ever apologize, to ever acknowledge a mistake. And he's the very definition of sociopathic, that is a person who is unable to feel sympathy for any other human being other than himself. On top of all those psychological defects, it seems evident that he has now trespassed into the realm of pure insanity in the sense that he believes so deeply what he's saying that he's now convinced himself. When you are locked in an echo chamber and impervious to other sources of information other than what you get from the sycophants who surround him, you ultimately come to believe your own lies. Now, it's possible that Trump always believed his own lies, but it's evident now that he has locked himself in the rabbit hole and is going to stay there the rest of his life. That's a trenchant critique and not hyperbolic by my reckoning. I, I think no. your your statements are grounded in astute observations. So this podcast is going to be more about you and your life and your experience. And I want to highlight the work you've done. So let's go back to the beginning. How and why did you decide to enter into the Foreign Service? Oh, to try to make the story shorter, I... Uh spent my junior year of college at the University of Sussex in England. It was the first time I'd been outside the U.S. and had the opportunity to travel around Europe to practice speaking the German language, to realize how much of a big world was out there. And that as a result, I got still more interested in foreign affairs than I had been. When I came back for my senior year, I took a course taught by a Foreign Service officer, a U.S. diplomat who was in residence at Washington University at St. Louis, and then took the exam. And uh, after the lengthy selection process, entered the Foreign Service in 1982, not thinking about, not intending that I would make it my entire life's career. But as it ended up, I did stay for 35 years serving the people of the United States as a U.S. diplomat. And it turned out to be a great choice for me in terms of my interests, my personality, my temperament. And I hope that your podcast reaches other young people who realize that this is a fascinating and rewarding way to serve the public interest of the United States. You mentioned the German language. Had you been studying it for long prior to going abroad? Well, not enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a couple years in high school and a couple years in college. You know, the one piece of advice I'd like to give every young person is study a foreign language early in life. It is 
difficult to learn other languages. When I entered the State Department, I was 25, and it was easy for me to learn Serbo-Croatian, which is a somewhat difficult language. When I was 30, it was difficult but possible to learn Arabic, which is a very difficult language. Wow. When I was 40 and studied Italian, which is a relatively simple language, it was difficult. And when I was 45 and learned to speak Greek, very difficult. So I really encourage everybody who's still at college or high school or just beyond college, work on a foreign language now. It serves you well in so many ways. It makes learning every other language easier. And it also liberates your mind. It allows you to see the world from other perspectives than the simple one that you grew up with. Do a language. What can I say? <laughs> what did you learn about yourself as a learner in the process of trying to learn other languages? Well, I learned that I had some facility with languages, and that made me regret still more that I hadn't been more diligent in studying German in high school and college. I learned that I have a capability to mimic. That is, I could get mm. sounds and accents pretty well to the point that it was more advanced than my vocabulary and often gave people a, a wrong impression. <laughs> I spoke their language. Was that the, good at times to give that wrong impression? Well, it makes a good initial impression right. on friends from other countries that you sound good in their language, <laughs> but then when they respond speaking at their normal pace, it sounds like 200 miles an hour. Right. My comprehension was not as good. My passive understanding was not at the same level as my active speaking. So that's difficult. But the other thing I look I loved about it is in the course of those 35 years, I spent nearly three years in the study of languages, two years in Arabic and one year in all the other languages. And I always thought that was one of the greatest side benefits of this career, that I was getting paid to learn a language. It was intellectually stimulating, not easy, often frustrating, but no other responsibilities at the time I was supposed to be concentrating on language. I didn't have to wear neckties or go to meetings, but I was getting still paid. I thought, hey, this is great. Other people pay lots of money to yeah. learn languages, but I'm getting paid to do it. And so I'm going to take it seriously and I'm going to use it when I get overseas. Yeah, what a benefit. It probably depends on the language, but would you be able to share with listeners any tips you picked up along the way to facilitate or accelerate your ability to learn a new language? Well, we had very good teachers at the Foreign Service Institute, all of them native speakers of the language they were teaching. Not all of them trained as teachers, but all of them became good teachers in the course of their employment. So that was great. Little tips that I would recommend is watch a lot of movies and television, but not only in the language you're studying. So for example, I watched lots of movies in Arabic 
with English subtitles. And that helped, although, as I said, I never got uh, to the level of passive understanding that I would have liked to reach. But I also found while studying Italian and Greek that watching English language movies with the subtitles in Italian or Greek oh, interesting. was a good way to understand how to say things. When you heard a common phrase in English in the movie and you looked at the subtitle and said, aha, uh -huh. so that's how you say, come and see me later in right. Greek, in real colloquial Greek. That's a great tip. Uh, the other thing that I did in terms of learning a language was to practice telling jokes. <laughs> uh, you collect in the course of anybody's lifetime, but especially if you live in many different countries, you get a good collection of jokes in different fields. So when I studied Italian or Arabic or Greek, I would take my favorite jokes, work with the teacher, learn to tell that joke fluently and colloquially in that language. And then I not only had an icebreaker for talking to different people, but also could understand how things worked colloquially. The final tip, and this was, you know, not something that's easily available to everyone, but in Greece, I was the deputy chief of mission, that is the deputy ambassador. And that meant that I was often invited to give speeches. And even though I was only a beginning student of Greek, I would force myself to give a speech in Greek. It might take many hours, a lot of work with the teacher to prepare even a three minute speech in Greek, but forcing myself to give longer and longer speeches in Greek, even if it included a lot of preparation time and practice, uh, was a great way to learn and certainly a great way to make a good impression upon the people of Greece. So those are the tips. Tell jokes and force yourself to give even short little speeches. I love the emphasis on humor. It's a tremendous challenge because humor tends to be based on wordplay and cultural reference points, both of which uh, take some time to understand and absorb and then to be able to use creatively to make a joke. It's a good sort of test in a way of advanced fluency. If you could successfully uh, make a joke and have people laughing with you and not only just at you because you formulated the joke poorly, uh, that's definitely a success in another language. Yeah, and you also have to pick your jokes carefully. I sure. Mean, uh, there are more and more categories that are no longer politically correct. Right. That's important to keep in mind. But look, the work in most fields, no matter how serious the field is, in government or I think in private business, although I don't have much experience in private business, there's always something inherently funny about <laughs> it. You know, as I was given progressively larger groups to lead and to manage within my career, one of the things that I said every time was, number one, you need to believe that the work you're doing is important to the people of the United States, important to their security and their prosperity. And if you don't see the connection between what you're doing and our national interest, come and talk to me and let's mm. 
route if you need to be in a different place. You should feel that every day. But number two, you should also feel every day amusement at the inherent absurdities of bureaucracy and diplomacy. <laughs> there are things that are so internally inconsistent or in conflict with each other, and that's the essence of humor. And yeah. if you find something that makes you smile every day, then you're taking your job too seriously, and I want you to lighten up. It is a funny business. There are good jokes and good stories to tell, but it's the everyday absurdities that should keep you light and on your feet. That's great. Are you a fan of the book Catch-22 by Joseph Heller? Uh, you know, I've never read it. I've got it right here on my bookshelf behind me. Got to catch up on it. Yeah, it speaks speaks well to uh, some of the mundane uh, absurdities that you're referring to. And now that we're rooted in the mundane, which is where I, I like to be on this show, you mentioned in our initial talk that there was never really a boring day on the job, which I think to many ears will seem unbelievable. I think that there are many people who work in stultifying jobs. So tell us, and I guess if there's no boring day, that also probably means there's no really typical day on the job either. But in terms of, let's say, tremendous excitement to a little bit of a slower pace, if we take a kind of median day on that spectrum, give listeners a, a sampling. And I know on the job involves different positions in different countries. So yeah. Feel free to contextualize, uh, you know, a, a sample of examples. Well, one of the things that I liked about a career as a United States diplomat in the Foreign Service of the U.S. was that it was good for my problem with my short attention span. And I mean short attention span on a daily and a yearly basis. On the long-term basis, a typical career in the Foreign Service means you are switching to a new job about every two years, progressively being given more responsibility, but it's probably a new subject area that may or may not have much in common with your last job. And so you constantly have a new challenge, a new topic. I mean, I admire academic researchers who are able to dig ever deeper into the same subject for 30 years, but that's not me. I was able to have a new challenge, a new field every two or three years. Uh, so in that sense, it was correct for me. But also on a daily basis, you're not doing a simple task every day, all day. When you're further down at the beginning of your career, you are probably spending half your day issuing visas, but every case of visas is somewhat different. But you may only be doing two or three different things in a day. By the time you get to the level I was at at the end of my career as an assistant secretary of state, there's 30 or 40 different tasks that I have to do in a day. And that is what I enjoyed more than focusing on a single task or a single subject in the course of the day. How to describe a typical day is difficult. Uh, again, at the beginning of your career, you're probably issuing visas 
at a U.S. embassy somewhere in the world, and that's going to be your primary activity for the day. It is uh, a little bit of a high-pressure job because you may be considering 100 or more people every day who are trying to travel to the U.S., and your decision, yes or no, has a big impact on their life. As you move up, you're going to have more diversity of tasks every day. When you're in Washington, a typical day is an awful lot of meetings of people from different offices or different agencies outside the State Department getting together to discuss an issue and try to make a decision on how to proceed. It certainly involves interaction with representatives of other governments in the course of a day where you might be leading the conversation or you might just be the note taker for the conversation. And afterwards, you have to write up a report on what was said. There's a popular image that is unfortunately promoted by Hollywood and others that the primary activity of diplomats is to go to cocktail parties, <laughs> wear fancy clothes. There's certainly some of that. When you get to a certain level overseas, I could have gone every single night to such an event. Oh, wow. Not quite every single night, but most nights. Right. Just drew the line and said, no, I'm going to go out once or twice a week and be home with my family on other evenings. There is a certain amount of business that gets done there. There is certainly a certain amount of alcohol that gets drunk there. And <laughs> I object to that myself. But it is far from the central work of being a diplomat. I think the work that we do is seldom understood well by the American people. And the best U.S. diplomats remind themselves on a daily basis, why are we here? Why are we stationed in Egypt or in Greece or in Russia? Uh, and the answer should always be to serve the American people. We're not there because we love Russia or we love Greece. We are there because we love America and we love the American people. And our job is first to protect the security and the interests of Americans in that country, uh, to promote the economic interests of the United States, to protect the borders of the United States by being careful in the issuance of visas. All of these tasks belong to the ambassador and the deputy ambassador at the top of the embassy, and then maybe they are divided up among the specialized sections of the embassy, from the visa line to the economic office to the press and cultural office. But all of them should have, and the best diplomats absolutely do have, the habit of saying every day, what am I doing for the interests of the people of the United States? It's not for self-interest. It's not for the exaggerated glamour of going to parties and parades. It is all done in the service of the American people. There's a sentence from your retirement speech. Each of us came to this work with our identities more or less fully formed and have preserved our values with greater or lesser success against the professional deformation caused by any bureaucracy. 
you just now spoke a little bit to the potential uh, professional deformation caused by any bureaucracy, but that phrase jutted out to me. And it sounds like knowing who you are and continually reminding yourself that you are there for the protection of America and Americans, but also recognizing the basic fact of flux, that we are changing and aging and getting smarter, and in some ways perhaps getting less smart as our brains age, but then again getting perhaps wiser with age in other ways. How do those pieces relate to sort of guarding against the the professional deformation caused by bureaucracy? Yeah, that's interesting. Professional deformation is actually a phrase I first heard in Serbo-Croatian in the fourth. Oh, interesting. And, you know, you become what you do, whether you're a politician or a lawyer or a diplomat or somebody else. And it happens to you insidiously if you are not aware of it. So when I retired and had the opportunity to speak to a large group just a few days after Mr. Trump's inauguration in 2017, and just a few days after he had relieved me of my position, I wanted to leave with some reflection about what I knew and some inspiration for the great majority of State Department employees who were going to stay. So as part of that, I reached back to the reasons that originally drew me to the public service. And that is, you know, the way I was raised, not only my parents, but the Catholic education, the Boy Scouts of America, the need to earn my own money at an early stage, and the need in a big family to be frugal. All of those formed a sense of responsibility and public service within me. I was very happy that the State Department had allowed me to have every day that sense that I was doing something valuable for the public and for the United States and for the world. And it was also important that I not lose sight of the original motivations that drew me to public service. And that's where the concept of professional deformation comes in. It is easy in any organization, whether it's the military or a government bureaucracy or a company, to let all of those absurdities that are inevitable make you cynical, make you only function with regard to your success in a particular endeavor and to lose sight of the bigger picture of the need to be doing something for the American people. And I was determined not to ever give in to the temptation of becoming completely cynical. There are many sharp comments that I've made about the absurdities but I usually do it with a smile. Look, the other point here, and it was a point I was trying to make in those farewell remarks, is that the State Department in 2017 was entering into an uncertain time. It was a time where the Trump White House and the Trump family in particular had already begun insulting and disparaging professional public servants in the State Department and elsewhere. And it was fairly clear and has become more clear since then that 
the Trump family and those closest to them have no concept of public service. They are not able to conceive that some people with intelligence would rather go to be a government worker than to be a lawyer on Wall Street or a real estate developer. They are not able to conceive of somebody who's motivated by something other than money or power. So I thought it important to remind the folks in the State Department that they don't need to change their own internal motivation simply because the leadership in the White House no longer had this concept of public service as a public good. I know that there's a lot of turnover in your line of work when a new administration takes over, but were you surprised? Was it abrupt when Trump took office and then you were let go? Abrupt is a good word, yes. Uh, (laughs) The normal pattern in any change of administration is that those people in senior positions who had been brought in from the outside because they were Democrat or Republican loyalists, that they would leave with their president on January 20th. But those people in senior positions who had been promoted from within, who were non-political career officials, whether civil service or foreign service, that they would remain in their job until the president had appointed someone new for their position. When Mr. Trump was elected, I seriously thought, well, I'm ready to retire anyway. I might as well retire on January 19th, the day before the election. And then I listened to President Obama and Secretary Kerry, who said very clearly, if you are a career official, your responsibility is to stay at your post until you are relieved. So I said, okay, I won't retire. I will try to assist the transition and I'll stay until somebody new is appointed. At that time, I was holding two positions, the assistant secretary job that I had held since 2011 and the acting undersecretary job one step higher that I had been in for just a few months. Like every other official, I submitted the pro forma letter of resignation to allow the White House to select who it wanted to keep and who it wanted to let go. The tradition in every other presidential transition had been that the career people stay and are not relieved immediately. Well, the Trump White House broke that tradition on January 25th, just five days after the inauguration. Uh, I was in the first group that included a undersecretary and three other assistant secretaries, all career, who were told the president has accepted your resignation. Your term in that position ends three days from now. Wow. I happened to be on an important trip at that moment. I was in the country of Jordan when I was informed that I was in my last 72 hours in this job. So I canceled the second stop in my trip to Italy. Uh, I finished my business in Jordan, came back home, finished everything I could, 
and agreed that I should retire. I didn't have to retire. The president could not fire me from government service. But rather than sit around and wait for someone to invent something else to do, I said, no, this is a good day to retire, which I did on January 31st. So, uh, yeah, all of this, by the way, you could read the extended version in Ronan Farrow's book, War on Peace, which uh, be introduces the topic by telling about my little story. And Tom, that last bit, just to clarify, so is there some stipulation that if you've been in service for X number of years that you can't be fired, but the de facto reality is that you can be relegated to obscurity indefinitely? Well, certainly the short answer is yes. The Foreign Service, that is the U.S. Diplomatic Service, is similar to the much larger U.S. government civil service in terms of giving employees some protection against political retribution or the whims of an unhinged president. So if I had stayed, it would have been a fairly easy life. You know, I might have been asked to help on a bureaucratic inspection of an embassy or to sit on a promotion panel to decide which officers ought to be promoted. Uh, all of that is important, valuable work, but I didn't see the need for me to do it anymore. So I was very happy to retire. And four years later, I'm still happy to be retired. My wife <laughs> really likes seeing more of me. That's good. <laughs> Not something you could have predicted with confidence. <laughs> so how have the past four years been going? Well, great. First point is that uh, I enjoy not having to fall asleep with my telephone next to me. I can leave it in the other room. And if there's a crisis somewhere in the world, I'll find out about it in the morning without having to be woken up. Did that happen often over the years? How many times a week would you say on average would you be woken up with a fire to put out in the night? Depending on which job I was in, not so much in the non-proliferation field, but as the deputy ambassador or the charge at an embassy like Athens, uh, it'd probably be once every couple of weeks. Wow. And even if it's not an emergency, sometimes you know, not a crisis. Sometimes it is something you have to respond to the same night. Of course, if you're overseas and somebody in Washington has a question, they don't care there's a six-hour difference. They'll call you anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm also happy because I'm able to pursue other things that interest me. So I'm now the chairman of a small non-governmental organization called the Arms Control Association. It's, uh, as I said, small, nonprofit, and I'm not paid, uh, but we do a lot of good work on analyzing U.S. national security policy and trying to reduce the number and the threat of nuclear weapons in the world. And then beyond that, I'm also on about on the board or the advisory committee for about six other non-governmental organizations that are in the foreign policy field. I get to uh, give speeches. I get invited to interesting conferences, all of which are these days on Zoom. I've kept busy by 
doing what we call track two conferences with Russians. Track two means it's not a government-to-government discussion. It is non-government officials. A lot of them might be retired diplomats like me or retired generals. And we sit down, Russians and Americans, and try to figure out how our two governments could have policies in the nuclear field that would be more stabilizing. Interesting. Try to make recommendations to two governments that really don't give a damn what we think. Uh, (laughs) But all of that work that we've done in these various U.S.-Russian dialogues over the last four years, I'm hopeful that some of it will be of value with the new Biden administration. So all of that keeps me busy. My house is clean. My yard looks nice. I get more sleep and more exercise than I used to. If I'd known retirement was this good, I would have done it. (laughs) There's one thought that be interesting to hear if you get this from other folks with whom you do these interviews. And that is uh, what I regret about the way that this career is structured is I have two wonderful sons. The first was born before I was in any very responsible position. The second, when I was starting to get higher up in the ranks. And therefore, most years, I did not have as much time to spend with them as I would have liked. If you were working past 50 and 60 hours a week, you just don't have the time and energy to be with your kids. Now I have the time, but guess what? They're adult. They're gone. I miss them. It would be interesting, and I expect it will be experimented with someday. What I would have loved to have done is to take a break in the middle of my career Mm. and say to the State Department, look, give me two years, three years, four years off right now when I'm in my prime so that I can just be with my family. And then after those two, three years, I will come back and work for you until I drop dead. That's a good economic deal for you. But of course, that's not the way things work. I expect someday some country like Sweden or Finland will experiment with this model uh, and see. (laughs) But uh, that's uh, one of my primary regrets. It's a very interesting idea. I end up talking a lot about trade-offs with people time for money, present for future. And I think in the case of spending time with with loved ones, it's tough because I think our view toward the future is much more stable than the future ever will be when it becomes the present, which is to say the people we imagine spending time with are different, have grown. Kids are kids for a brief window. And then they are adults for the rest of their lives. So from a time standpoint, assuming you and your loved ones have the good fortune of living long lives, that window of childhood is brief. So getting some really quality time in there is definitely something that I think people should keep in mind. Tom, I want to go back to, I know we've sort of done a little bit of a career arc here, getting into retirement talk now, but I actually want to go back to some of the exciting moments. I want to go back into the trenches. One of the two photos on your Wikipedia page shows you removing landmines in Afghanistan. I'm sure people would like to hear about that experience. 
And I'm wondering uh, if there are any other particularly thrilling or exciting moments of your career you could share some anecdotes about. Yeah, I should get on Wikipedia and correct that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that was actually my pre-question. Does Wikipedia have it right? Not quite, no. I did not remove any landmines myself. That particular point in my career, I guess that was 2010, one of my duties in the Political Military Affairs Bureau was supervising an office called Weapons Removal, which cleared landmines and other remnants of war around the world. So on a visit to Afghanistan, I got to see how their money was being spent, uh, but I did not actually remove any landmines. High points uh, in my career. Well, I've had the opportunity to sit with presidents and prime ministers and popes and kings, not always on a equal basis, sometimes more like a fly in the wall. But that's a uh, an experience that's hard to get in any other profession. But I've also sat with farmers in Egypt and shopkeepers in uh, Greece and winemakers in Italy to talk about their lives and to understand what daily life is like for them and how that relates to America and to American lives. It's hard to exaggerate that for most people around the world, having the opportunity to talk to an official American and deliver a message to the American government, even if it's on a very simple everyday kind of concern, like the low price of wheat that they're getting paid as a farmer, that's a big day for them. And it's fascinating for us. In terms of accomplishments, the things that give you satisfaction change as you go over time. So on the first few years of my career, one of the things that brought me genuine happiness at work was that I worked on the issue of divided families. That is, Americans from Romania who were prevented from having their family in Romania come to the U.S. either uh. as or as immigrants. And that was a down-in-the-weeds, case-by-case work with the Romanian government. But when you succeeded and you saw families reunited, that uh, that's a big feeling. Later in my career, in 99 and 2000, I was, again, working on the country that I knew best, my wife's home country, Serbia, uh, kind of the biggest part of what was once Yugoslavia, and working with Serbian opposition parties that were trying to unite in order to get rid of the dictator Milosevic. And they succeeded. They succeeded mostly because of their own unity and decisions. But I like to believe that we also helped in terms of advice, in terms not of financial assistance, but media assistance, and in something that was a close call, that is forcing Milosevic to leave office in 2000, every little bit helped. So I'm very proud of the role the U.S. played and and glad that I got to be one of the leaders of that effort. In later years, I mean, there's a number of things that as an assistant secretary, I got to negotiate. 
One is the agreement with Russia to remove and destroy Syria's chemical weapons. That was a, a very intensive negotiating process. It was 99% successful in terms of destroying Syria's chemical weapons, not 100%, but it was a very important example of US-Russian cooperation, and I was glad to have the lead in doing that. Other agreements that I negotiated at the United Nations or at South Korea with South Koreans and others, they are all high points. But really, I think the thing that gave me the greatest job satisfaction was not a specific agreement or treaty or something. It was that as assistant secretary, it was given to me to manage and to lead a really extraordinary group of professional experts in all fields, chemical weapons, nuclear energy, border security, many other areas. We had a highly motivated and expert team of nearly 300 people. And simply to give them guidance and to help them set priorities, and then to be the spokesman publicly or in high-level meetings for what they knew had to be done, that was great satisfaction. And I also made sure to take the time to meet individually with any of the employees who wanted to meet with me to talk about their career path where they wanted to go, whether they were satisfied, what advice I could give. And I still do that today. There are a number of people who once worked with me, and there are a number of students, undergraduate and graduate, who were on my monthly list of people I touch base with just to talk about careers and where they might go next and to give them any advice I have. That is great satisfaction. It's not just accomplishing something for the United States, it's ensuring that we have another generation of people who are excellent, well-trained, experienced, and motivated by the desire to serve the public. Mm, that's wonderful. And I'm hoping some of our listeners can benefit from some of your comments here, some of the points that serve as, as mentorship to the extent that listening to a podcast can stand in for a little bit of uh, mentorship. And I also think you, you should probably be hosting uh, this podcast from, from winemakers to kings. It sounds like you've met such a range of people and, and, and are just such a, a bastion of stories. And, and regarding the people you've met, I know that you worked under John Kerry and that you were a special advisor to Madeleine Albright. Can you share with, with the listeners thoughts about these two august you know, individuals who've been very prominent in U.S. government for many decades? What was it like being on teams and, and working with these people? Uh, well, they're, they're great people. I mean, I really enjoyed working with some extraordinary secretaries of state. George Schultz, just a little bit, although I met him many years later and he just passed his 100th birthday, still one of the best secretaries of state ever. Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Hillary Clinton, and John Kerry. I thought each of them were outstanding in their interest, 
in their people. I mean, they knew what they wanted to do in a policy sense, but each of them showed genuine concern for the organization, for the morale and well-being of the thousands of people who worked for them. And I think Colin Powell especially stands out in that regard. I mean, the other thing I, I tell people when I seek to interest them in the State Department, in the diplomatic service as a career, is not just that I never had a boring day on the job. I never had a bad boss. Oh, wow. I think there's very few professions where you could say that. I had a couple who were just good and many bosses who were excellent, uh, some career officials, some political appointees, but I never had one who was negative who was an egomaniac, who was disparaging to his employees. I have just so many great examples of people who were mentors or supervisors from whom I learned so much and who I tried to emulate in handing back to the people who worked for me some of the accumulated wisdom of the State Department. Mm. Given all of the countries you've lived in and you've learned languages in, what comes to mind in terms of your first exposure to certain kind of cultural codes of conduct or certain norms of etiquette that would be completely foreign to anyone who spent their whole life in the U.S.? And maybe relatedly, we did touch on humor, and I wanted to just follow back up because I'm sure with your eye toward the absurdities of bureaucracies and you know, the inevitable failures of certain systems while also trying one's best to maintain those systems. I'm wondering if just any moments of humor and also just moments of learning about etiquette and conduct that were kind of surprising when you were first exposed to them. Well, etiquette is very culturally specific. It's going to be a little bit different in every country. Look, the basic thing is to show respect. And sometimes that's hard for Americans to grasp. Americans demand respect, but it is not always natural even for American diplomats to automatically show respect for other cultures. Mm. And especially being now outside of the State Department, but continuing to talk to diplomats from various countries, I see more similarities than I would like to see among the American and Russian and Chinese way of speaking to others. Interesting. There can be a certain condescension that I think they're not even aware of, a natural superiority other countries find offensive, but that they have learned to put up with. This is not universal, but when I hear the way Chinese diplomats speak today, I kind of understand how other countries and citizens of other countries viewed American and Russian diplomats mm. for many, many years. I mean, the fundamental thing is respect. I, there's a lot of talk, and in fact, I'm just writing a little article now about diplomats being able to speak well, and certainly that's important. But I really think the fundamental skill for any diplomat is the ability to listen, to listen empathetically and truly understand what the other person is 
saying. It's not just the job of the diplomat to make an argument for the U.S. position. You could do that in a newspaper or in an email. It is to understand why another government thinks differently than we do, to be able to explain that to Washington and to be able to help another government find why it's in their interest to be closer to the U.S. position. That's the essential job of a diplomat. If people are interested, and I, I hope I've hooked at least a few younger people, not necessarily <laughs> very young because I have a lot of friends who started a foreign service career after 40 years of age. Oh, wow. I hope you go to state.gov slash careers and just look at the different options for foreign service, for civil service, for internships, especially, because I know so many great diplomats who began their careers as interns at the Department of State. State.gov slash careers and uh, take a look at what's out there. We need good people. Even during the Trump presidency, I continued to encourage young people to enter the U.S. Foreign Service, and I hope that we continue to get some of the brightest young people in America to represent the United States overseas. Well, I'm very happy to boost the signal, hopefully, of that message of recruitment. And regarding the previous point about developing empathetic listening skills, I just want to reaffirm how important of a reminder that is. I think it's something people hear from a relatively young age. It's important to be a good listener. And I think sometimes we mistake the sort of commonality of that advice for it being easy or simple. But I think actively listening with empathy is not always easy. I think in the absence of reflection, we may defer to sort of attitudes of condescension, uh, some of which you're seeing, as you just described, in countries where there may be a sense of superiority at times in Russia, China, or the US. The philosopher Simone Weil said, attention is the greatest form of generosity. Uh, and I've, always, I've always really liked that a lot, and it seems right. per pertinent to what you're saying here. Um, thanks again. This has been really a delight, an early birthday treat for me. As I mentioned, uh, my birthday's tomorrow, and, and this was uh, I enjoyed it so much. So thank you very much for your years of service and for sharing some of your knowledge and insights with our listeners. Thanks again. All right. Well, thank you, Pat, for doing this series. I find it interesting. I hope it's uh, valuable to people who are still pondering their way forward in life, but even those of us who have already come a long way forward still find this uh, fascinating. So please keep it up. Thanks so much, Tom. Have a good day and hope to talk to you again in the future. Thank you, Pat. Take care. Bye.